I want to begin by saying thank you to the vocal group for leading us in the singing this morning. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, giving glory to God and honoring the one who really is worthy. Thank you. Uh, we turn our minds now to the word and we want to hear from scripture as we continue in our series called uh, The Christ Has Come. And I want to begin this morning by just telling you about a personal experience from my younger days and an episode which has entered Goodwin family folklore. And it relates to uh, an occasion in 1996 when uh, Joe and I were leading a team of young people from here to a uh, sports camp in the Hawke's Bay. We weren't quite married at that stage, but we led the youth together here. And we were at this long weekend in the Hawke's Bay at a sports camp, so we were playing all kinds of sports, morning, noon, and night, and it so happened. On one of those days, in an early morning uh, game of rugby, I was knocked unconscious and was quite badly concussed. And for the whole day that followed, I basically forgot who I was. Or, to be more precise, I kind of knew who I was, but I'd forgotten my story. And it was really a bewildering time and when people realized that uh, not everything was quite right, I was bundled into an ambulance and taken off to Napier Hospital, I suppose it was. And Joe got in a car and followed me there. And it was quite concerning for her because we just got engaged the week before. And so we were just newly engaged. And when she came to see me at the hospital, I didn't know who she was. And she showed me the ring because I asked for proof and <laughs> she was trying to persuade me that we were engaged. And I really didn't know how to react. I mean, she's quite a beguiling, beautiful woman, but hey, I didn't know her. Should I embrace this? Is it better to keep my distance? I really didn't know how to behave. And because I had forgotten my story, I couldn't see what I should do next. And a famous philosopher uh, once said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story do I find myself a part? If someone said to you, uh, tell me about yourself, you're likely to tell them a story, aren't you? Because a story our life story is very important. It gives significance and purpose to what we do. And stories are important. The Christian claim is that there is, in fact, an even bigger and more important story than the story of your life. Uh, there's a universal story, actually, that gives significance and meaning to every human life when we find our place within that story, and that's the story of God. And it's a story that we find in Scripture and that we believe as Christians. Well-known Christian thinker Tom Wright said, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. And when we know how we fit into that story, into the story of God, we're going to know. At least we're going to know better how to think, how to be, what to do. And when we come to Christmas time, we celebrate the crucial part 
of that big story, right? The birth of Christ. And Jesus is central. We just were hearing from the vocal group, I've not heard the song before, Jesus is the center of it all. Is that right? From beginning to end. Can't quite remember how it goes after that. But Jesus is central to this big story, but the story reaches much further back, as Corbus was just reminding us as well. And we might expect that, right, because God has always been here. We see that Christmas has a backstory in some of the most well-known Bible verses that we hear at Christmas time. Remember that an angel comes to Mary, tells her that she's going to be pregnant, and the angel says this, Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you'll see here that it speaks of the throne of David. And so these statements point us back a thousand years before Jesus, 3,000 years before our time now, to the time of King David, who was the greatest and most famous of the Old Testament kings of Israel. And today, the assignment that's been given to me is to consider the way in which the life of David points forward to the life of Jesus as part of the big story of Scripture. Uh, at this Christmas season. So we're going to be based in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it would be really a good idea if you have a Bible to turn there uh, so that you can refer to it yourself and just follow what's being said. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, in this passage, we find this famous King David at rest, victorious. He's living in his new capital city of Jerusalem in a fine palace, which David describes as a house of cedar. And earlier in 2 Samuel, we read that King Hiram, who was an ally of King David, sent David cedar and other premium building materials at an earlier point in order to build His house, and so presumably this is a very fine building uh, that David is inhabiting, and he's a sincere person of faith. 
and he sees that he is well catered for with his accommodation, but the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence with the people is in a tent, a very old tent. And he wants to build God a house that will give God due honor and be glorious and all of that. And that seems like a decent idea, doesn't it? Seems like a reasonable idea. To me, he shares it with his advisor and prophet, Nathan, and uh, they think this seems reasonable. But God's response to this proposal, uh, the response that comes back through Nathan to David is quite lukewarm. It's kind of like, thanks, but no thanks. You know, God asks a rhetorical question in verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Seriously, you want to build me a house? Verse 7, uh, he says, um, he's never talked to any prior leaders saying, why have you not built me a house? God says, have, have I ever asked for a house? No. So God doesn't uh, warm to the idea, we might say. And my impression is God simply doesn't need this house. David wants to make it from sincere motives, but God's happy without it. And actually, this is part of the big story of the Bible, that God has no need for anything we could possibly give him. He doesn't need a house or some kind of shelter. He doesn't need servants to help him. He needs nothing that we can supply. And the reality is that God is just too big and too great. He can't find us at all useful, given how great he is. And this is pretty consistent teaching that we see right through uh, the Bible. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, God is speaking and he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? You know, I've made galaxies and quasars and 156 billion light years of stuff. This is where I reside. You're going to make me a house? Good luck. You know, God is too big for us to put him in a box of stone or of cedar, any kind of conceptual box. He is great. Interestingly, when Stephen, in the early days of the church, was accused of speaking against the temple, he quoted these verses from Isaiah, and he said, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And later on in the story of the church, Paul says something very similar. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And in his majesty, God needs nothing we could give him. And that's part of the big story, the Christian story. It's about a God who is great. And if that's the big story, how are we going to be? We're going to be humble. Let's read on. Verses 8 to 12. God is speaking. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, 
that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, in these verses, we see that God is not only great, he is good. And that is also a part of the big story. You know, God is gracious, he's generous, he desires to bless, even though we can do nothing for him. And in this passage, we see God's goodness uh, directed uh, towards David. In verse 8, God says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince. You know, even though David was nothing, the youngest of his family, a shepherd, wandering around lonely paddocks with the animals, God showed his goodness and his love toward him and raised him up to an honored position. And he promises uh, to David uh, that he will make him even greater. In verse 9, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And furthermore, in response to David's offer to build a house, you may have noticed God says he will build David a house. In verse 18, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And the tendency of human religion, it's just the natural impulse of our hearts, is to think we can impress God, we can do God a favor, we can put God in a, our debt, we can trade something with God. But the biblical view is we can do nothing for God, and yet in his grace, God does good things for us. David can't build a house for God in any sense that is useful to God, but God will build David a house. Now, there's a play on words here because God doesn't mean he's going to make David a building, but rather a household or a, a dynasty. And that's made clear in verse 12. It says that God is going to raise up a descendant for his, from, from David and his kingdom will be established. And so sometimes we might talk about the house of Windsor, for instance, and that is a sense in which God is going to make a house for David. So there's a bit of uh, play on words there in the passage. God is good to David, but this is not just about God's goodness to David. We see uh, this in verse 10. It says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. So, God's intent is that through David's leadership and through raising David to this position, the whole people of Israel, the whole Old Testament people of God are going to be blessed. They're going to have a safe 
and a good place to live. And uh, so this is something wider than just one person. It is a whole people. And it's actually a, a tremendous act of God's grace. Because who are these people? The Israelites were raised up to be a light to the world, but they've proven a failure. Many times in the Old Testament, they're called a rebellious and. What's rebellious and? I'm not hearing it. I did there just then. Someone was brave enough. A rebellious and stiff-necked people. Right? Stubborn in their rebellious ways. The people who have repeatedly worshipped the Baals and Ashtoreths, false gods, and about 50 years before the time of David that we're reading about, there'd been a kind of a, you might say, a culmination to their disobedience. They're dissatisfied with God, and they ask for a human king to judge and to lead them. And you read about that in 1 Samuel. And God describes their decision this way in 1 Samuel 8 and 7. Uh, God says, they've rejected me from being king over them. So this is who God is dealing with. People who have rejected his rule, they said, we would think a human could do a better job. But now in his goodness, God promises to take their evil and he's going to make something good out of it. This demand that they've had for a king, he's going to get on board with that, he's going to work with that, and he's going to bless people through it. You know, that's the grace of God towards people who are opposed to his purposes. And so the Christian story says that not only is God great, he's also uh, very good. And if that's the big story, how are we going to be? We're going to be grateful. Let's read on in the final part of the passage for this morning. Starting again in verse 12. God says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, here we see uh, that God is not only great and good, uh, but he has a long-term game plan. God makes a promise to David about his offspring, about his descendants. Now, Psalm 89 is an interesting passage to read alongside 2 Samuel 7. It's like a poetic, extended poetic reflection on... Uh, this episode in David's life. And in Psalm 89 and 3, it describes this actually as more than a promise. In Psalm 89, God says, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. 
David, my servant. Okay, so this is like God says, I'm marrying him, basically. We're making an unbreakable set of promises to one another. It's a covenant. And there are a number of important elements to this promise. Verse 13 uh, says that this descendant uh, is going to build a house for God. So houses come into the passage again. And here we see the greatness and the goodness of God together. Because in his greatness, it's clear, God doesn't need a house. But in his goodness, he can freely choose to be present in a house for his people, out of love. God says, this descendant is going to build me a house. In verse 14, we read that this descendant will be a son of Father God. In verse uh, 14 to 15, we see that this descendant of David is going to be punished, but he remains eternally loved of God. In verse 16, we read that David's dynasty, his line, his throne, his rule will be established forever. And there's an obvious question, I guess, that presents itself to us as we consider this, and that is, who is this descendant promised by God? Who thinks they know the answer? Be brave. I'm only seeing like half a dozen hands. Okay, former hypothesis people. Who do you think? It's actually not that difficult. But on first reading, we might think that all these promises were basically fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, right? Because after all, Solomon was a splendid and a successful king. And Solomon did build a temple for God, a house for God. And it's clear from Scripture, there is a sense in which Solomon was a fulfillment of this promise that God makes to David, this covenant with David. But if you keep reading through the big story, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, you get the sense there has to be more for at least a couple of reasons, right? Firstly, uh, the dynasty of Solomon, it didn't last. Uh, and the temple that he built, it was destroyed. And that was already mentioned this morning. Corbus talked a little about the temple. And so contrary to the covenant that God made with David, the dynasty that followed Solomon was not established forever. And there were about 20 or so kings that followed in the line of Solomon uh, in the story of Scripture. And, and most of those kings, they continued in the pattern of failure and rebellion against God, and some of them were just horrifying. And ultimately, the last of the Davidic kings, who was Zedekiah, was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his sons were killed, his eyes were put out, and he was put in chains and taken to Babylon. And that was the end of Davidic rule in the nation of Israel. And you could read about that in 2 Kings 25. And though Solomon did build a house for God, it was destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimately, uh, we read in the Old Testament, it was replaced by an inferior uh, construction. So the Old Testament ends with a deposed kingship and a diminished uh, temple. And even in the later writings of the Old Testament, before we get to those hundreds of years of silence, before we get to the New Testament, uh, this 
into the story is a cause of great puzzlement. Why is it like this? I mentioned before Psalm 89 as a poem about God's promises to David, and interestingly, it ends on quite a negative note. Here are some verses from that psalm. The psalmist says, the poet says, you're full of wrath against your anointed, or we might say against your Messiah or your Christ. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. How long, O Lord? Where's your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And as time wore on, the people of God were convinced there must be more than this. Now, David's promised descendant is not yet here. Now, as Christians, uh, we can clearly see that, that those that were puzzled by the situation, they were on to something, right? God's promises were not fulfilled in Solomon. The unchanging purposes of God were first announced in Genesis 3 that Bradley talked to us about last week, that from Eve would come a descendant who would crush the head of the snake, the serpent. Uh, and that promise of God that someone was coming, that was repeated many times to others such as Abraham and Moses, and we find the promise, the unchanging purpose of God elaborated on in this covenant with David. And this game plan of God, it was talked about for a long time. But it wasn't fulfilled in Solomon or any of those early kings. It was fulfilled in Jesus. And the game plan of God is centered on Jesus. Right? He's the promised uh, son of David. He's the son of the father. Right? Many times in the New Testament, we see him referred to as the son of David. And John's gospel in particular is fond of reminding us that he is the son of the father. And Jesus is the one who builds a house for God, according to actually both meanings of that word. Jesus establishes a temple, a dwelling place for God, not one built by human hands, but a number of times in the New Testament, uh, we hear about the church as a kind of a living temple established, um, being built together uh, by God as a dwelling place for him. And Jesus is the foundation. And, and in the other sense, Jesus also makes a house for God, right? He establishes or reestablishes a royal dynasty. He is king. He is God's chosen one. He is Messiah. He's our king. And he's a king who will finally be acknowledged by all and death and hell and those things which are our final enemies will be placed under his feet. God is great. He is good. And he has a game plan in which even now we are participating and which will come to a glorious fulfillment in the future. And as we together seek to execute the plan, how are we going to be? If that's the big story, we're going to be trusting. It's quite easy to forget the big story, isn't it? 
And rather than being humble before God's greatness, we can start to think that the story is all about our achievements, our activities, our work for God, the massive Christmas party that we're going to throw. We might even start to believe that the big story is about human progress and technology and power and all the things that we can do. It's easy to forget the big story. Rather than being grateful uh, for God's goodness, uh, we can start to be despairing over failure and disappointment, things that don't work out, the burnt Christmas turkey. And we might even start to think that the big story is about disaster, environmental or AI apocalypse, that actually we're living a nightmare. Easy to forget the big story. And rather than trusting the unchanging game plan of God, we can become quite cynical in the face of injustices and evil and wrongs that we suffer. We might even start to think that the big story is just a series of accidents. There's no one in control at all. Uh, here's something that our family has sometimes done to try to commemorate the big story at Christmas time. We've followed a tradition uh, called a Jesse tree. And Jesse was the father of David. And so it's named after him. And it's kind of like a family tree. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a family tree that, that looks at, at the line of events which leads to, to Jesus. And during the Christmas period, from, you know, as the days go on, you hang decorations on the tree. This is just, I think, a, like a MDF thing from Spotlight. And, and Joe made these decorations that go on the tree. And, yeah, so every day you hang up a, a different decoration. This You won't be able to see them from there, but uh, this is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So that's what Bradley was talking about last week and the promise of a savior right at the beginning. Uh, here, here's one that has a shepherd's crook and some hills on it. Again, if you're in the front row there, you might be able to make it out. Uh, but that represents David as a shepherd in his early days. And here's one with a crown representing David as a king. And here's one that Hannah painted. Uh, we were discussing in the car on the way here what exactly it is. We're not too sure. A gray cloud. But it represents Hannah to show that she's also part of the big story in her own way. So that's something we've done at Christmas to try and remember the story. And we want to do that at Christmas time, don't we? The King, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of David has come. And so we want to join with the angels in crying glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Perhaps we should pray. Father, in your presence now, we want to honor you, to submit ourselves to you, to bow down to you, to acknowledge you are great, you are good, 
in your wisdom, you have a game plan. We just want to respond in humility, in gratitude, in trust. Thank you. Cause us to remember the story, to remember Christ this Christmas. Help us to give you the honor and the glory that you deserve, we pray. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen.